Recovery Elevator, episode 398. When you find a sense of stillness, you find a sense of oneness. Like you and I are one. We're on the same planet, on the same frequency. When you find a sense of oneness, you find a sense of connection. When you find connection, you find love. And to me, love is God. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's podcast, we have Adam. He's 20 years old. He's from Vancouver and took his last drink on February 8th, 2013. Dang, great job, Adam. Listeners, Recovery Elevator is going back to Costa Rica, April 12th to the 21st, 2023, and registration opens up today. For the most part, this is a different itinerary than the one we had last year, and we added an extra day at the beach. So we start in San Jose, then we head to La Fortuna for some stand-up paddleboarding at Lake Arenal. Then we head to Rincón de la Vieja National Park for some jungle exploring and a volcanic mud bath. Then we go to Playa Carrillo for a surf lesson and some smoothies. We've got yoga and recovery workshops built into this trip, and it's going to be a lot of fun, just like the last trip. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Or go to the recoveryelevator.com website for more info. One more thing. I want to say thank you to all our Cafe Re chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. Thank you. Okay, let's get started. Last month, on September 7th to be exact, I hit eight years without taking a drink of alcohol. Now, the first thing I need to mention is a massive thank you. A thank you to everyone who helped me reach this milestone. Thank you to my parents, Molly and Perry, my brother Mark, my dog Ben, the RE team, the RE community, and you, the listener. You, the listener, have been a major part of this AF streak. No bullshitting here. I could not have done this without you, the listener. Eight years ago, this past July, I woke up in a suicide-proof jail cell when an officer slid my breakfast into my jail cell, which consisted of a kitty-sized styrofoam bowl of raisin bran. Huh. So thank goodness today looks different, much different. Again, thank you. So listeners today, I want to share some takeaways with you. But before I do that, I want us to take five seconds and I want everybody to send some love to those who are still struggling with addiction. Maybe send love to yourself if that's you. If not, send love to whomever you think needs it the most. Tie again. That's five seconds. Ready, go. Okay, now let's cover some of the insights that I've learned over the past eight years. Now, this is somewhat rapid fire round, so stick with me. Here we go. Alcohol is shit, even in small amounts. None of it is healthy for you. In fact, this is a massive myth. It's a straight up depressant tranquilizer, and it will kill you if you drink enough of it. This isn't fear mongering. It's a fact. All right, next up. I'm so thankful for this journey. Looking back, I was never on the wrong path. Alcohol addiction is the invitation to make sweeping change in your life. It's an invitation for you to get to know yourself. Okay, next up. Burning the ships is important and here is why. 
Burning the ships leads to accountability, which then leads to community, which then leads to connection. It's almost like a math equation that always holds true, at least from what I've seen. So tell your spouse, a loved one, friends, family, or light the whole fleet on fire via social media, but you've got to get honest with yourself and others. Next up, the opposite of addiction is connection. I do believe that. Now, ways of connecting are infinite. You do first have to connect with that inner kiddo or connect with yourself. Then you can connect with other humans, animals, food, the ocean, mountains, the earth, the stars, or your Fender Stratocaster. Next up, I want you to focus on the wins. Be aware of where you could have done better, and it's good to practice this daily, but then focus on what you did right. And again, do that daily as well. Next up, admit you're wrong when you need to in real time. Now, society has a major problem on its hands. People can't admit they are wrong. Now, we don't have this problem as then those who quit drinking because we have to swallow an elephant-sized pill of this in order to quit drinking, as in we have to admit that what we were doing didn't work, that we were wrong in some areas of our life. Okay, next up, action. You have to take action. Reading quit lit books and listening to sobriety podcasts is a great start, but you must take action. I often harp on this podcast that reading quit lit books or listening to just podcasts isn't enough. However, I do want to mention Jeff L. at this moment, who hit five years of alcohol-free time and his program is only listening to recovery podcasts, so I guess it is possible. Great job, Jeff. Next up, don't worry too much about your sobriety clock. Keep showing up. Keep visualizing that alcohol-free life in your mind, and eventually, the sobriety clock will line up with your goal to quit drinking. Next up, join the party. Join the alcohol-free movement that is gaining momentum daily. According to Carl Eric Fisher in his book, The Urge, 1820 was the high watermark for alcohol consumption in the United States of America. We are so close to hitting the J-curve of an alcohol-free movement. Next up, join the party. You are human. We all struggle with something. Be kind to everyone, for everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Now, this is either a Plato or a Socrates quote. The internet seems to say it's both of them. Hmm. Okay, next up. Join the party. We are wired to help people. This is why we have been so successful as a species. Help someone else realize their goals in life. Okay, next up. You want to make sense of your suffering or channel that energy into a different direction. Using your pain and lessons learned to help others quit drinking is a solid way to do this. Now, this is basically the foundation of AA, being of service. Okay, next up. Leverage your drinking problem. Listeners, this is a big one. You punched a ticket to this club and the entry for admission was pain, rock bottom moments, failed internal promises, you being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Another way to say this is don't just quit drinking. You earned your spot in this club. You earned your chair. You belong. An expansive, loving community is waiting for you. I'm also an advocate to leverage the fact you don't drink with coworkers on dating websites and really in all areas of your life because it opens doors. Okay, next up, you might be in the wrong room. I don't like being in a room full of drunk people. I don't like being in a bar past 10 p.m. In fact, I don't like being in most bars at all anymore. You may need to ask yourself if you're in the right room. Next up, not everyone is kung fu fighting. Not everyone drinks or is drinking as much as you think they are. 
In fact, around 30% of Americans don't drink, and that number's 40% worldwide. And about 50% of the humans on the globe at this moment have not had a drink in the past 12 months. Okay, next up. There is nothing fundamentally wrong with you at the biological level. You don't have an alcoholic gene. Now let's go here for a second because this can be somewhat controversial. Scientists have fully mapped the human genome and they didn't find an alcoholic gene. In fact, they thought they would. They also didn't find a gambling addiction gene or a cigarette gene or an Amazon Prime shopping gene or an Oxycontin gene or a Benzo gene. These are all learned behaviors, in my opinion, to survive in unhealthy environments. You, currently at this moment, have all the circuitry needed to quit drinking and lead a healthy life. One interesting thing is that scientists did find a binge eating gene. Now, side note with this genetic stuff, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if alcoholism is genetic or it's environmental. You still got to do something about it. Okay, next up. You not drinking is the most badass thing about you. Leverage it. Next up. I feel addictions are what save us. Now hang with me for a moment. Addictions force us to confront the most dangerous creation in nature, the human ego. Collectively, the human ego is responsible for more than 100 million human deaths in the 20th century alone. We are the first wave of people who have accepted that being at peace is more important than being right. How did we get there? We choose to live. If not, we perish. We're almost given an ultimatum, and if you take the addiction long enough, that will happen. So in this regard, an addiction is perhaps the most profound teacher that we can ask for. Now I feel screens, technology, will be the greatest addiction of our time, and the groups that have quit drinking or are versed in this recovery world of healing will pioneer the way for perhaps every other human being on the planet. Now I understand this theory might be a bit out there, but I think I'll have a good idea in my lifetime if I'm right on this one. And if not, I'm wrong. And I'm also cool with that too. And listeners, here's the biggest lesson I've learned. Well, and I'm still working on this one, is it's that this moment always wins. As in always. What I mean by this is I feel addictions take hold when the moment we are in is so unpleasant that we have to depart from it. And you know what? This is okay. Life can be a total kick in the goat blocks at times, without a doubt. However, it's the continuous desire to depart from the present moment is where we get ourselves into trouble. Really, a craving is the desire to feel differently than we currently are, especially if alcohol is out of your system. So yes, with that definition, I still have cravings. I still feel emotions and have circumstances that I like to depart from from time to time. But I try to remind myself that this moment always wins. Another point I want to make with this is the mind will tell us that salvation or wholeness lies in the future. Dissolving that illusion is the river crossing that the Buddha talked about. We all must do this. Now when we understand that this moment always wins, then we begin to accept our current situation as it is. No more energy is used to fighting what currently is. Now I'm not levitating on a cushion while I write this. As I said, I still struggle with this one. But slowly and surely, the default is no longer mentally departing from my body when life sucks. Okay, how did I spend my AF anniversary? I went to breakfast with my wife in the morning, and then I hosted the noon chat in Cafe RE. I love to host the Wednesday noon chat, but this guy Jim keeps snaking me and signs up before I can. (laughs) I'm just joking, Jim. Everyone again, huge thank you for helping me get to where I'm at right now. There's not a chance I could be here without you, the listener. 
And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Adam. Life can be overwhelming, and no matter who we are, problems are guaranteed to arise. For me, sometimes when new problems come up, I feel a bit paralyzed. It's important to assess situations and to talk to people I trust when it comes to finding solutions. I've gone from thinking I have to figure it out all on my own to asking for help when it comes to problem-solving mode. There's no better feeling than finding solutions and gaining confidence through problem-solving. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Therapy has always been important to me because I need someone who can catch my blind spots and be clear with me. Someone who can see things that perhaps I'm not catching, and someone that can give me professional feedback without me feeling hurt or judged. We take such good care of our bodies, the mind should be no different. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapist anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com elevator. Thank you, Paul and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Adam. Adam, how the heck are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. This is cool. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, so I'm glad that we were finally able to make it work out. I appreciate you coming. Before we before we start, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? I don't know the exact days, but it's getting close to 10 years. It's like, yeah, but like a little, little over nine and a half, so it's February 8th, 9th, 2013, so getting close to 10 years. Fantastic, man. How are you feeling? Oh, great. Yeah, super good. This might be contrary to like the one day at a time thinking, but... But like, have you thought about like 10 years, like a celebration or anything? Do you do anything like that? For when I get to 10 years in, yeah. in a couple of months? No, not really. No, I, I really, I just like, I love my life. And I think every day is kind of a celebration, not to be too corny or anything, but <laughs> I'm just really happy to be alive and I get to do what I love for a living and stuff. So every day is pretty great for me, to be honest. I'm, I'm sure I'll, you know, see my friends and hang out and stuff, which is cool, but it's just another day. Right Any day sober is a good day, I feel like. <laughs> Amen to that. Can you tell listeners uh, a little bit about yourself, Adam? Uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, uh, family, anything like that? And then what do you like to do for fun, most importantly? Okay, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, my name is Adam Carroll. I'm in Vancouver, Canada. I'm 30 years old. So I'm a full-time personal trainer and nutritionist. And then I'm also a certified trauma recovery coach, certified mental health and addiction supervisor, and then certified breathwork therapist. So I spend the first first half of my day uh, personal training and doing nutrition stuff. And then the second half of my day, I do breathwork sessions and uh, sober coaching group. So that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. And then, yeah, my family, I have a pretty small family, just my mom, my dad, and my aunt. Um, we're all pretty close, though. And then, is that it? Uh, the ever important, what do you like to do for fun? Oh, what do I like to do for fun? All right. Uh, well, I've recently got addicted to cold plunges like ice baths. So <laughs> that's been a new thing. That's really fun. Well, it's not fun in the moment, but you feel really good after. So I love that. And breath work, breath work's a big thing for me. So I do breath work every morning, uh, exercise, obviously I, I exercise every day, but aside from all that, I, I like spending time in nature. So I go on a lot of hikes and, uh, have a dog. So we go on a lot of hikes with him. And then traveling, um, <laughs> haven't traveled in a while just because of the last couple of years, but 
going on vacations is always nice. Go somewhere warm, lie on the beach. Nice. It stands out to me, Adam, that when I said, what do you like to do for fun? The first thing he said is cold plunges. I said, what the hell? Uh, I'm not as far north as, as you, but yeah. North I, just, I just went to the gas station and got all my ice ready. So as soon as we're done, I'm jumping in. <laughs> you are nuts, but we, uh, we've got a huge lake close to us and that's i probably that's my once a year cold plunge is like when we go out and it's still like in may but it's just it's a big yeah. like, it stays cold and it's like fuck i don't you think you should cut I, a hole in the ice then just jump in i don't have <laughs> i don't have i don't know i don't mean i don't want to sell myself short i don't know that i the have the first minute or two are rough but then you kind of get used <laughs> to it and it's okay and you feel really good when you're done so it's just getting through the four minutes when you're in there but it, it gets easier with time for sure all right. I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> All right, man. Very cool. Dude, you got a full plate, but lots of, lots of really neat stuff with the breath work and the coaching. Yeah. Let's get into it. I want to hear, I want to hear how you got into all this stuff. Let's talk about uh, how we got here today, Adam, a little bit about your journey with alcohol. Maybe tell us how, how you started, how you got introduced to it, a little background, and let's just work our way through your story. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. So I was born in Vancouver, Canada. I was, or I, my parents got divorced when I was seven. So I was just raised by my mom after that. My dad had some pretty serious addiction issues, uh, alcoholic and some drugs. So I was exposed to it at a pretty early age. I wasn't really aware of it at that time, but looking back on it now, I can kind of see the patterns and what was going on, but I wasn't really aware of it at that time. So it wasn't in my head when I was that young, but then kind of going on into elementary school, uh, the last couple of years of elementary school, and then high school for me, uh, I was getting bullied quite a lot, like getting beaten up pretty bad. I got some threatening letters put in my locker and my desk and stuff. So I was really insecure and just uh, really uncomfortable in my own skin for most of my life when I was younger. So I just got bullied all the time. And I, I was really struggling with that. I was anxiety and depression and stuff at a pretty early age, like 12, 13 type of thing. So that's when I found smoking weed and drinking. So I think I was with 13 the first time I drank or smoked. And when I did that, I, I immediately felt better. And I, I knew that that was kind of a bad thing when I was doing it. I, I knew that that was not a smart thing to do, but I was young and the, the guys around me were doing the same thing. So it gave me kind of like a sense of community and definitely calmed my anxiety and made me feel a little bit more comfortable with my own, own skin. Uh, looking back on it now, though, I'm I'm Scottish and my dad was born in Scotland and my grandfather was an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. So I think the genetic thing is a real thing because the first time alcohol touched my lips, I kind of knew I was in trouble. But yeah, so from there, uh, going into high school uh, in grade eight, I, I have the pretty extreme personality. So anything I do, I do like 110%. So once I started doing uh, smoking weed and drinking, I quickly started to sell uh, weed at school. And then I got kicked out of school at the end of grade eight. Um, I never ended up going back. So that was the end of my schooling career. Um, and then just with the way I was behaving, I was selling selling drugs and doing drugs and just living with my mom and she, she couldn't handle that. Uh, so she asked me to leave when I was 14. So I did. And I got my own apartment. Um, I think I was about 15. I got my own apartment. And I got my own car because the guys I was working for wanted me to have a vehicle and I was making okay money back then. So I had my own car, my own apartment when I was 15, which was cool. I mean, we had a lot of parties and had a lot of fun in that house, that's for sure. But um, obviously way too much freedom for a young guy to have like that. Um, so I made a lot of really terrible decisions at that age. So I think probably within the first month or two of me having my own place, I started doing steroids, cocaine, smoking cigarettes, alcohol and weed. 
So those were like my main, my main vices throughout my career. And so I would go to the gym every day and put on a good amount of muscle uh, that made me feel a little bit better. And then being in a gang gave me like that sense of community and kind of protection that I was always looking for from being that bullied kid. So knowing that these guys always had my back and I was getting a little bit more respected, felt really good at the time, but I didn't really see the other side of that type of life for a while. It took me a while to learn the lesson of what actually goes on when you do that stuff. So for the year, there was about a year in Vancouver. So when I was 15, I did that for about a year, um, just driving around selling weed and some other things. And then I kind of ended in, um, I got jumped really bad. Uh, I got pulled out of a car and beat up pretty bad. And then there was a, a death threat that was sent to my mom's home phone for me, not for my mom, but a death threat for me sent to my mom's home phone. And she listened to it and freaked out and called the cops. So I went over to her place and we listened to the voicemail together, my mom, the police officer and I, and the police officer, I had had some interactions with him in the past. His advice to me was just to get out of the province for a while. So that's what I did. I uh, left Vancouver and moved to another province. When I moved there, I was planning on just being a normal kid. I was thinking about going back to school and getting a job and just trying to be a normal 15, 16 year old. But when I got up there, I got a job at Foot Locker and I became friends with the manager there pretty quick so we moved in together and things just escalated pretty quickly i kind of missed the adrenaline and the life that i was living before so uh working at footlocker is a pretty good place to network so i <laughs> quickly found the people who were doing what i wanted to do and approached them and then got involved um but where i moved to was a much more dangerous and serious uh environment when it comes to doing and selling drugs mm. so i went from selling fairly benign stuff to selling just the hard stuff and much bigger quantities than i was used to so uh, again, it kind of gave, gave me a sense of community and just being involved in the gang was like a, a very comforting feeling to me, just knowing there was all these guys who always had my back no matter what happened. And all I had to do was just do what they told me to do. So I, I was just totally enthralled with that. It was a very attractive thing to me at the time. I think also being on steroids, I was a lot more aggressive and uh, probably a, la- a lack of critical thinking um, being on steroids at that age. Oh, I didn't even happen. really hit puberty, and then I was on crazy levels of steroids. So, yeah, did not not a smart move for sure. Started working for them up there, and I did that for again about a year. At the end of that year, I was sixteen, and uh, we would go to the club every night, get like the VIP section and stuff. Uh, so we were doing that, um, and then a rival gang showed up at the club. We went outside to the parking lot and got in a big fight. Um, I was in the middle of a fight. I was just fighting some guy. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't feel my leg. So I fell down to the floor. And when I looked down, there was a knife sticking out of my leg, like up high on my hip. So I got stabbed up high on the hip, but the knife actually like stuck in my leg. So instinctively, I just tried to grab it and pull it out. But I learned later that like that's really dangerous because of your arteries and nerves and stuff. So I didn't. And they threw me in the back of a pickup truck, drove me to the safe house. And then uh, we had a nurse who met us there. She pulled the knife out of me, stitched me up and gave me antibiotics. So that was my first real like, um, I mean, I guess fights and getting beaten up are traumatic, but that was like, my first real like traumatic event like that. So that yeah. scared me for sure. And I took about a month or two off. I came back to Vancouver just to let it heal up because I couldn't really walk. It just took some time for it to heal. So then I went back up uh, when it healed up about a month or two later. And when I did, I brought a friend with me this time. He wanted to get involved in what I was doing. So he moved up there with me. And since I had been there for a year and they know, knew what I'd been through, uh, I moved up the ladder a little bit. So I was in charge of a couple guys and my friend was working under under me. So he was doing what I did when I first started. And then so I was about 16 still. And then 
between six months and a year later, uh, he was working the phones. Everything was fine. We were staying in the same house. So we'd see each other every day. We would go to the club all the time. We had a lot of fun doing and selling drugs all the time. I don't think I missed a day of drinking and using. I was very consistent. But yeah, so I think it was between six and 12 months uh, since he moved up there. I remember I was on a bender for probably two or three days with no sleep, no food, anything like that. So just like totally whacked out in my mind, like not in a good mindset. He called me at about two in the morning, uh, just like in a panic. I could tell something bad happened. So he just asked me to flew or fly, like, like get to his place as fast as I can. So I got in the truck and just flew over to his place as fast as I could. When I got there, he was sitting on the edge of his building, uh, like leaning against his building and he had a white t-shirt on. It was just covered in blood. So I ran behind him, sat behind him and kind of like pulled him into my lap and I was holding holding his chest. And when I got there, he could talk to me. We were talking for like a minute and then he couldn't talk anymore. And then I felt his breath start to get shallower and uh, someone had already called an ambulance, but I kept telling him he was going to be okay. Um, and then another minute or two later, I felt like him take one big breath and then the rattle in his lungs and then he just slumped over into my arms. So he passed away in my arms. And I remember being strung out like that and being up for a couple of days, just looking down and seeing a dead friend covered in blood in your hands is a really yeah. weird thing. That's uh something I still can't get out of my mind, even though I've done a lot of work on myself for that. Um, that's That'll be with me for the rest of my life, I would imagine. Let's take just, we've, dude, that's a lot of shit. <laughs> In the last few minutes that we've, that we've covered, if we could just for a minute, this, you know, starting at 13, you know, your first usage and just like you, you talked about how, like you knew that you were getting into something that did that, like you could recognize maybe this isn't what I shouldn't be doing. And then like, I feel you, you know, you had mentioned too, you're with your first sip of alcohol knowing like, Oh shit, this might be a, a tough road. And I feel you there. Uh, like I was very similar. I knew is from my first night. I was like, I really like this and I want to do this shit again, you know, and then even going a little further back to, you know, your folks separating and the, and the bullying, like, I mean, you had some shit going on and it sounds like you found a, you found that thing. Like, even though you had that recognition that there's, there could be some problems with this, but it was, it was still that thing that was like a bit of a cure in and of itself too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, looking back on it now, I mean, obviously it was like a coping mechanism to deal with all the stress I was going through, but just at that age, I wasn't smart enough to know like the potential impact it could have on my life and alternatives to that, like learning some other coping mechanisms and stuff. And just being on your own at that age with no real parental oversight. Like, obviously, it was very easy for me to make really bad decisions. And I just, you know, I got involved with the wrong people. And then that just cascaded into what it became into. So, yeah, yeah. looking back on it now, it's pretty easy to see all the mistakes yeah. I made. But at the time, it seemed normal and it seemed like everything was going to be okay. But Yeah, when we're, like, when we're young, it's just, we, I, we're very short-sighted. I think that's probably pretty universal. It's just some of us Definitely. grab yeah. onto different things than others. I'm curious if if over this... So, you know, starting at 13 and we're what, 16, 17 now. Yeah. Were there, were there points along the way that you, that you ever had any like moments of pause, like shit, like, should I be stopping this or, or is this a problem or, you know, I know it can kind of play out a couple different ways. Either we look at it, we just persist anyway, or sometimes we're so numb that we don't see anything. Yeah, no, I definitely had some um, situations that made me rethink things. One of them was all of my friends that I was friends with since I was like five or between five and 10, like friends that I've been friends with my whole life. They were not happy with the decisions I was making. And I was like, 
I felt really bad that I was not friends with them anymore. I wasn't living in the same place as they were. They were they they became professional athletes playing football, and I was the the guy who was the screw up who dropped out of high school and selling drugs and stuff. So I used to be really close with her parents. I used to be really close with them, and then they just wouldn't ever talk to me again. So that made me feel really terrible. But with the way the way I was back then, I was kind of like um like I'll show you type thing, you know, like yeah. people are telling me that I'm a loser and stuff. So it just made me, if anything, it made me more motivated to just keep doing what I was doing. And I think the steroids play a big part in that just because of how like default aggressive I was like anytime anything happened, my, my default emotion would just be anger. And that got me in a lot of trouble. But yeah, was, there was a lot of times where I questioned what I was doing, especially as we go on a little bit in my story, I had a couple more events that really made me question what I'm doing with my life. And the main one is what got me to get sober. So yeah, it's definitely a lot of wake up calls for sure. But for me, it took like 10 wake up calls to actually wake up. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you're alone there, you know, and just as far as like losing those friends too, I think, again, I think a lot of us have had those similar moments. And for some people it is that like, it's that, all right, I need to stop and turn around and shift. And, and for others of us, it's, we just lean more into like, well, okay, here's, you know, here's confirmation that some more people are going to abandon me or, or let me go. And you know what, like this is working to, but it, it will subside the pain for, for a moment or at least make it so I don't have to think about it. So it, it can, it's, it's weird. You know, it's, it, it, it can definitely push us further. Well, to bring it kind of first full circle, actually. So that, that I, I did feel really bad about that. And I lost my best friends. I was really upset about that for a really long time, but in the last couple of years, they've been following me and seeing, you know, that I'm sober now and what I do for a living and stuff. And I've had actually two of them reach out to me because they were struggling with addiction and post-traumatic stress. So they oh. reach out to me and they're like, dude, like we've seen you, what you've been saying, like, can you come help us? So now I'm working with two of my friends who I've known since I was five. We didn't see each other for almost 15 years, but now they're coming to me because they know what I've been through and they're, we're, we're, all, we're all 30 now, but they're, they're going through what I went through when I was like late teens, early twenties. They're going through that now at 30. And that's really rewarding for me that I'm the person they turn to. And now we're back being friends again. So it's kind of a beautiful thing the way it all turned out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's in the moment it was tough, but now I'm actually really grateful for it because the friendship we have and being able to help them is really rewarding. So yeah, it's a different level of connection. That's very cool. But yeah, so, all right, as we walked forward, you know, you talked about the escalation and then moving and yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's continue where we where where you had left off. Um, you, you had this image and you know, you mentioned you still do of uh, you, you know, you lost someone who was close to you and, and you witnessed it. You're there for it. Yeah. So I, um, he passed away in my arms and eventually he went in the ambulance. He was pronounced dead. So he passed away. Um, I got back to the safe house and uh, told the guys what happened. Looking back on it now, my reaction kind of surprised me, but um, my reaction in the moment was just anger. Kind of, like I said, I just wanted like revenge and we had an idea if we did it. So it was just like really angry and just wanted revenge. So a lot of things I can't talk about when it comes to this stuff. But um, let's just say I made some mistakes and hurt some people. And um, I was around a lot of violence. Like myself, I didn't do too much. I've gotten a lot of fights and stuff. But there were some people in the crew who were like legit, like in jail for murder type guys. So there was a lot of violence. And I, I had watched, I, I had, yeah, I had watched a lot of people get really hurt with violence and some people lose their lives and stuff. So that's a lot of where my post-traumatic stress disorder comes from. But yeah, just kind of moving on from there, there's 
a lot of little things that happened and stuff I can't really talk about. But um, if we just fast forward to when I was 19, so I was yeah. selling and using that whole time. So for two more years, I just kept selling and using. And then the main traumatic event that got me to get sober is this last one. So I was 19 turning 20 and I was still selling at this time. So, but I, did, I don't want it to come off as I was more of a drug dealer than a drug user. I was using every day. I was still like, I would use every day. I would drink every day, but I was also selling. So I went to go do a deal with a guy who I didn't know that well. And I was getting set up, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, so I, this is where my memory gets really foggy. So I remember uh, so I went to go meet the guy. I got to where we were supposed to meet. I got out of my car and turned the corner around the building. That's the last thing I remember until I woke up in the back of the trunk. So I had something over my face and my hand tied behind my back. Uh, I was in the back of the trunk and I was kicking the lid of the trunk to see if I could get it to open, but it wouldn't. And then I passed out again. So my, I didn't find this out until way later, but I fractured my skull and my brain was bleeding. So I was losing a lot of blood and going in and out of consciousness a lot. So the next memory I have is being tied to a chair, uh, still with something over my face, my hands behind my back. I think there was about like between three and five guys who were holding me and they just wanted access to our network and information from me and stuff. So that also, uh, I was held captive for between 12 and 24 hours. And I don't remember all of it. There's a lot of parts that I don't remember, but what I do remember is, um, they so it started off by them taking a knife and cutting across my chest like slices on my chest so i have big scars on my chest so i got a big tattoo to cover all those up and so that's how it started and i remember that because that was painful <laughs> and then um, after that they ramped things up a little bit so they were punching and kicking me the whole time and then they pulled out a gun and put it next to my head kept saying they were going to kill me um and i remember being in that moment i was like 100 percent sure that i was going to die because I know people that have died that way and people that are, that are in that life, like it's not a joke. It's not a game. Like it's very serious. And I was really convinced that I was going to die. And then I had this out of body experience where I was in the chair. And then all of a sudden I was like in the top corner of the room, looking at myself in the chair. And I did that for a while and it was kind of like peaceful and calm. And then I went, <clears throat> I went to this like really light place. It was just really bright with like lots of colors and shapes and stuff. Okay. It's kind of the way people describe DMT, although I've never done DMT, but it sounds similar. And I was like talking, it wasn't to people, but there was like entities or beings that were kind of like interacting with me as really weird experience. Uh, so I did that for a while. And then I felt, felt like the sensation of falling in my stomach, like my stomach rising. And then I hit the chair. It felt like I hit the chair. So I was like falling and then I hit the chair and then I was like back in normal life. So it was a really weird thing because obviously I was in the chair the whole time, but the sensation of falling and the, the out-of-body yeah. experience was something I still think about to this day because it was just crazy. And then eventually they let me go. So they, I had shoes and pants, but I didn't have a shirt. It was the middle of winter. It was freezing. And because I was bleeding from everywhere, that I, I remember just being covered in blood. They let me out, but I didn't because of my brain injury. I was super disoriented. I didn't know where I was. So I would try, I took a couple steps and then I fell and then I would crawl and then I would try to get back up and walk again and I would just fall again. So eventually I made it to a stop sign with the intersection of two streets. When I got there, I just leaned up against the stop sign pole and called my friend. He came and got me from the intersection and took me to the hospital. When we, when I got to the hospital, I remember being on the stretcher and kind of seeing the lights pass by me as I was going into the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then I remember lying on the... I don't know if it was the operating room, but I was in a room with nurses all over me that I could see. And I remember one of them yelling, he's crashing. That was like a very vivid memory. Like I, he's crashing. And I didn't really know what that meant, but 
obviously not good. Um, so I, my heart stopped and they had to use the paddles and I think a shot of adrenaline. Um, so I passed away for like a couple minutes and then they brought me back to life. But I remember when they were over top of me and then all of a sudden I just, it just went black. Like I, I was just not, I, I like wasn't there. And I knew that in the moment that, that was me dying. And I remember like feeling like in my chest, like the deepest sorrow I've ever felt in my whole life. Like just the fact that like my life was going to end that way. And like, I was so young and I hadn't even had a chance to be like deliberate yet. And I was so ashamed of the way I was living my life. And just like thinking about how my family was going to feel all of those things. So it's just uh, super tough, really sad. Um, and then after that, I kind of had this sense of peace and it was kind of like beautiful. And I think that was like me passing away, like to the, the life, life to death transition type thing. So once I got over the initial sorrow part of it, it was actually really beautiful and peaceful. And uh, that that feeling, the, the feeling of sorrow like that is something that was like so powerful that it fuels me to do everything that I do today. Because I remember how bad I felt and how ashamed I was that I was going to die that way. That like yeah. I made a promise to myself that when I when I woke up in the hospital and I was able to gather my thoughts that I promised myself that. I would never feel that way when I'm dying again. So the next time I die, whether that's tomorrow <laughs> or 50 years from now, I'm going to make sure that I'm proud of the life I lived and I can look back and be proud of myself because that was a terrible feeling and I never want to feel that way again. So I was in the hospital for about three months. Uh, I couldn't talk for a while. Um, I had to relearn how to walk. Uh, There's a lot of, lot of things I had to go through the therapy for. And I still have some issues, obviously. So I, I just have traumatic brain injury. So it's never really healed. Like I still have trouble regulating my emotions. My memory is terrible. Um, so it's, it's a struggle. I'm losing vision in my right eye. So there's a lot of things that go on with the brain injury that's really challenging. But eventually after that three months, I got out of the hospital and uh, I told the guys that I was no longer going to be doing that anymore. I, was, I, literally, I literally died. So that's kind of the end of the road for me. <laughs> but they wanted to throw me a party for my 21st birthday. So they did. And uh, we went to the club and I got super drunk and uh decided to punch some guy in the face and i ended up in the drunk tank on my 21st birthday so that was uh, the last time i used was my 21st birthday so it was february 8th 2013 and then i was in the drunk tank and then when i got out the next day that's my sobriety date so february 9th 2013 and uh i just i called my mom and that was the first time i was completely open and honest with her about everything that i've been through everything that i've been doing so I told her she was obviously very upset and she allowed me to come back home, which was really important because if she didn't, I don't know what I would have done. Um, so she let me come home and I came back to Vancouver and lived with her. And that's when I started to get sober. So yeah, that was, the, that was all my using and trauma history and then getting sober. I had, so the first two years of sobriety were the hardest for me because I've had suicidal thoughts my whole life or for as long as I can remember anyway. But when I got sober, they kind of got worse. Uh, or I just, I didn't have the things I was using as coping, me coping mechanisms anymore. So when I was sober trying to sleep, it would just be nonstop panic attacks, like seeing dead friends and all the things we kind of talked about, just like constantly yeah. playing in my head that I couldn't get out of. And it was just so miserable. Like, so I had a suicide, two suicide attempts in the two years. That's yeah. I think that's one thing that we don't, that I think a lot of people don't anticipate. And I don't think that this is, this is a reason to not get sober. Like, I don't want to scare anyone who's listening from like making that choice but it, i think it's something to be aware of is that a lot of times that some of those feelings that that anxiety or depression or or whatever it may be 
when we first sober up, like some of that shit, it feels like it gets turned up because it, exactly what you said, we're not the the our coping mechanism. We've we've removed it, so it's like, oh shit! Like now I have to now I have to feel this, and it's like that's okay. We can, but it's but it but it's it's hard. I've come to the conclusion um, over the last couple of years that I think when I first got sober, I was kind of just running for myself. Like mm-hmm. I didn't want to have time in my own head and I didn't want to think about the things that I'd done and relive it and like work my way through it. So that was kind of, I think why it was so hard for me. I think if I attacked or if I approached a little bit differently, it might've been easier for me, but I had two suicide attempts. It doesn't really matter the specifics because neither one of them worked. Um, but one really so uh, after the two suicide attempts is when I went to my first AA meeting, I found a mentor there who I really respected because he was had similar past to me. He was in jail and involved in gangs and stuff. So I could really relate to him. And he said this quote to me that I always repeat because it, the quote, like just the quote changed my life and changed the way I think about things. So the quote was that uh, he said it directly to me, but I think it applies to anybody Um he said, if, if I killed myself today, I'd be killing the wrong person because I don't know who I'm going to become. And that totally changed my perspective because I was just caught up in the way things were, but I didn't think about who I could be or who I could help or what my life could be like. So when he said that, I kind of uh, was shocked and I was thinking like, oh, wow, like that maybe there is hope and maybe I can be a better person. And that's what I did. So he's a, he was a breath or is a breathwork therapist. And he told me about breathwork and how it worked for him because he had a lot of post-traumatic stress he had to work through. And he said that breathwork was the best thing that he's ever done to help with that. So I did my first session with him and uh, it was a crazy, like profound experience. You do a specific breathing pattern for a certain amount of time and then you kind of just fall into a meditation. And when I fell into the meditation, I got to spend time and say goodbye to my dead grandfather who died when I was really young. And it felt like super real. It felt as real as like sitting here talking to you does. It felt like I was like right there with him. And that was such a powerful experience for me. So I was hooked on breath work after that. So then I did a session a week, every week for a year. And uh, he would get me to set an intention beforehand because uh, I was trying to go back to specific moments in my life that were traumatic just to relive them and then process the emotions and work my way through them. So we would do that. And um, I, I was finding that I was crying every time I would do it. Like every week I'd be bawling my eyes out. So I went from like never crying to like crying all the time, <laughs> which was a weird, weird yeah. transition. And I was afraid that if I showed my emotions or I cried in front of somebody that I would go back to being that scared little bully kid. Mm-hmm. So I was really like reserved and like scared to show my emotions to people. But then I've learned now. And if I've had it said to me, it's just like crying is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. Like if you can cry in front of someone and be completely open and honest and true to yourself and let people know when you're struggling or show your emotions to other people, like that's true strength. I think mm-hmm. hiding it is actually like a sign of weakness. So that changed my perspective quite a lot. Um, just being comfortable showing my emotions. And I have no problem saying like, I'm an emotional dude. I, I cry. I think it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. I think it's actually a, a positive good thing because I'm grateful that I can feel my emotions now because for a long yes. time I felt like I didn't even have emotions. So I'm just grateful that I have them. And yeah, sometimes I'm sad, but also sometimes I'm happy. And it's just, it's emotions are actually a really beautiful, good thing. I think like from someone who didn't feel them for a very long time, I'm just grateful that I can feel my emotions now and be aware of them. Yeah. Um, but then, so yes, we did the breath work for a while and uh, I got through the first 12 steps for the first time. And that really helped me address like my 
my psychological issues because when I got back from um, the, the province I was in, I went to see a neurologist, psychologist, and another doctor just to see how my brain was doing and all the issues that I had. So I got just diagnosed with severe traumatic brain injury, severe post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, um, BPD. So I was put on a lot of medications. And honestly, I'd, I'd never had a medication that really worked well for me. So I was on and off a bunch of them for that two years. And then eventually I just was off all of them. And I just started doing the breath work and I would exercise every morning. And that's still what I do to this day because that's what's worked best for me. So breath work and exercise have been like the best antidepressant and um, helping to help me process my trauma and just become a more self-aware human being. So those are two huge things that I do every day to this day just because of how much it's helped me over the years. One of my favorite things about breath work is I feel like it, I've had experiences where it's it's like it shows me because there's there's times where I don't like maybe I don't want to see what I should be working on, but I feel like breathwork will show it to me, and yeah, it, it allows me to focus my attention in areas of my recovery or, or or my life, and yeah, it's just I think I think it's a wonderful tool, and if I think people should check it out for sure if they if they haven't, it's well, I look uh, at uh, breathwork like you said as a tool, but it's a tool to create stillness. When you find a sense of stillness, you find a sense of oneness. Like you and I are one. We're all on the same planet, on the same frequency. When you find a sense of oneness, you find a sense of connection. When you find connection, you find love. And to me, love is God. So that's kind of where I put all the pieces together because I, I've i always been physically active and my body's always been pretty well-functioning. My brain, I have definitely have issues with my brain, you know, with the psychological issues and the brain injury. But that was getting better by doing the steps and working on the program and stuff. That was definitely getting better. But my soul, like the love part of myself was something that I always felt like was missing. And then after doing breath work for long enough, I started to like develop love and compassion for myself. And then when I did that, I felt like a huge sense of relief. And also I didn't, I, I learned not to attach myself to my brain or my body. So like, if I look at myself in the mirror, I call that my avatar. So like my brain and body is my avatar. But I'm, not, I'm neither of those things. I'm not my brain. I'm not my body. I'm the awareness of the brain and body that's going mm -hmm. through a set of experiences called life. So I don't attach myself to my brain or my body. I, I don't identify with the labels that I've been given. Like, I'm, I don't think I have post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm like all those labels that you're given. I think it's really easy to attach your identity to those things. Yeah. So I really try not to do that because when I first got diagnosed, I did. I was like, oh, I'm screwed. Like, I have this for life. There's no way to fix it. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that just had, I had like no power. I felt completely helpless. Mm. So then when I started to look at things that way, I, so now like sometimes I'll catch my brain in a loop where I'm thinking negatively or judging someone. And then I'll just kind of like take a step back and be like, oh, my brain's doing that stupid thing again. But that, that, that doesn't make me upset because I just, I recognize it and then I can kind of shape it and just get myself back to a loving place and not in my ego. So that really helped me. And also an analogy, a really good analogy, not necessarily for breath work, but just for life in general, is like the, the devil and the angel on your shoulder thing. Mm -hmm. So the devil is your ego. And then the angel is like your heart or the love part of yourself. And for me, growing up the way I did, uh, especially in gangs and with violence and stuff, my ego needed to run my life in order to protect me. So my ego ran my life for pretty much my whole life. But then there became a point right when I was probably about 25 that my ego didn't serve me anymore. And it was just causing me more problems than anything helpful. So then I tried to let the love part of myself take over. Um, but that was, it's a big transition because 
working with people, I work with people now. And when they go through that, like, it's a really hard fight because your ego doesn't want to surrender control because it's not significant unless it's controlling you. So it's like you, you feel this huge internal resistance because like your ego doesn't want to give up what it's used to and the routines you go through and the way you normally live your life. So you feel this like big fight in yourself. It's like you're fighting yourself, which is a really weird feeling, but it's really common when you do this type of stuff. So I had that and I, that was like a solid like six months to a year of just like learning how to live this way from a place of love and not ego. Yeah. So it took a while. That that awareness of that need to surrender versus the act of like truly surrendering or or as much as we can. That's those are two different things and it's 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 a process for sure. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Well with the I think what it was I look back on it now and I think like the things that happened to me were terrible in the moment. But I think like the worst thing that ever happened to you could end up being the best thing that ever happened to you, given it some time. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel now. Like I look back on all the things that I went through and they were traumatic and terrible at the time. But now I'm really grateful for everything that I went through because I learned a lot of lessons. And now with everyone that I work with, I can relate to them uh, really well. And I went through, I feel like I went through all of that so I could help other people get through it. Like I feel like I had a lot of like close calls with death and I actually did die one time. So this second chance of life, like I'm here to help people and I'm not going to waste the second chance of life that I have. So all of that, like after when people listen to it, I'm sure they're like, oh my God, that's so crazy. Like I feel bad for this guy, but I don't feel bad for myself. I'm actually really happy that I went through that stuff because it just, it made me into the person I am today. And I, I do really love the person I am today finally. So it's great to be able to say that. That's good to hear, man. And I think, um, you know, just having a conversation with with my 15 year old daughter she's like rolls her eyes as i talk about some of the shit but um <laughs> anyway i was talking about you know like you and i have different stories but you know like the stuff that that i that i've gone through i was like you know i was like part of me you know there's those moments where i'm like this sucks like this sucks that i put my wife and my kids and my friends and family whatever through these things or that i that you know put myself through it too but the the beauty of it is it the beauty of it is that it doesn't have to be for nothing like when when we're able to take that crap that we went through just like you were saying when we're able to turn those things around and use it for something good today like it, it's i truly believe that it that it's not for nothing that you know we can take that that pain and use it to to serve others and 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 help this world because there's there's people who are who are living in that pain right now who might not see a way out or feel completely yeah, lost well, with the post-traumatic stress thing, um, like I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but I don't put the D on the end because I don't consider it a disorder. Like if you if your body gets a cold and you get a fever, that's normal. If your body gets a cold and you don't get a fever, that's a disorder. So I think if you go through a traumatic event and it makes sense that you have stress and anxiety associated with that, it doesn't seem like a disorder to me. So I just call it post-traumatic stress. And then when I started doing breath work and working on the steps, that, that was my post-traumatic growth. And then through my post-traumatic growth, I found my post-traumatic purpose. So I'm a big fan of like reframing things in a positive way, if you can't tell. (laughs) Yeah. So my post-traumatic purpose is just to help people the same way that I've been helped and just try to like make people's journey a little bit easier by helping them any way I can. So I think just reframing things uh, in a positive light that you can, you have more control over has a huge impact on your recovery and your mental health. Um, So yeah, that's definitely been something that's been a game changer for me. Dude, I, I'm writing down, I don't know where I'm going to use it, but I just, I want to remember post-traumatic purpose. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. I think language is, language is 
important and the like the the labels that get that thrown at us or that or that we throw on ourselves you i mean you said we can it's easy to attach ourselves to that and if we're going to attach ourselves to something to hell with it being this like sentence or this you know this we're doomed to something like if if i'm going to attach myself to it i let's how can how can we use it it's it's all perspective and we can use these things to elevate ourselves versus like drown ourselves or or push her push ourselves into this like shit misery destiny of yeah. uh, of despair like no there there yeah. there's light in all of it well i think one of the main issues that's like humanity wide is like experience identification mm-hmm. so you do it you do a thing and then you identify with that thing and you just perpetuate the idea of that experience so whether that's you being an addict or like i see it in like the hunting community like hunters like they're they're super into it but that's how they that's like that's where they derive their meaning from as a human being like if they don't have that then they're then who are they and i had that too but like now that i've worked on myself and done what i've done like i don't look at myself as just a personal trainer or just a sober coach or anything like that those are things that i do but i'm much more than any one of those things and i don't attach myself to the labels that i've been given for mental health or anything I do still consider myself like an addict because of my personality. And I know kind of that road, like I I need to be very clear on the way my personality is and the issues I've had. So I still identify as an addict and an alcoholic because that's a big part of who I am. And I know that that road is a bad road to go. So I want to make sure I'm pretty, pretty solid in my brain that I'm not ever going to go back to that. But I, I think that's, that's a huge issue for a lot of people is just, attaching so much of your identity to one thing that you do like no human is that simple like no you're not just one thing like you're you're a huge combination of many different things yeah adam dude i love it i think you've done an amazing job just shifting turning that my pastor said i love my pastor but he says we're gonna turn our mess into a message and i think (laughs) i think you've done that and you're continuing to do it and i i think it's beautiful dude um thanks man i appreciate that with that we are at the rapid fire round. Are you ready in, in 30 to 60 seconds? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right, number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? That I would lose my edge. Gotcha. Like I would go back to being that scared, insecure, bullied kid. Yeah, that's a protector. It can be. Uh, what is a positive that you didn't expect in your life without alcohol? No more hangovers, but I expected that so I can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think just the relationships I can have with people now. There's such like honest, open, caring relationships, and a lot of the relationships I had with alcohol were shallow. So just the, the relationships I'm able to have with people now. Yeah. What is your go to alcohol free drink? Coffee? Is that, is that Co- coffee? coffee? Yeah. <laughs> Coffee's a drink, man. That counts for sure. Yeah. <laughs> What is a technique that you use when you find yourself having a having a craving? Breathing. So I do. Um, well, this is supposed to be rapid fire, so I don't be too long winded. But well, I pay attention I to my breath. It. Okay, so I pay attention to my breath. So you're you have two branches of your nervous system: sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic is the stress state. Parasympathetic is the rest and digest state. So for breathing, your nose is parasympathetic and your mouth is sympathetic. So whenever I'm feeling anxious or craving, I shut my mouth inhale fast through my nose and then slowly exhale so if you uh, close your mouth push push your tongue on the roof of your mouth inhale through your nose fast and then really slow on the exhale 
I always try to do that whenever I'm anxious or I have a craving. But whenever anyone who's listening to this, if you're anxious or whatever, the exhale, if you go slow on the exhale and fast on the inhale, that's down regulation. And if you go uh, slow on the exhale and fast on the inhale, that's up regulation. So down regulation slows your heart rate down, brings you back down to a calm state. And then up regulation brings your heart rate up and brings you uh, like your level of alertness up. So that's kind of like your remote control to control your state. So if you're anxious, exhale slowly. And if you want to get a little bit more energy, then inhale and just repeat the inhale and exhale fast. But yeah, that's, that's a big thing for me. So it always comes back to the breath for me. To the breath. Uh, that was way longer than a minute, though. My bad. Ah, uh, you're good. You're quick on the other ones. What is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Doing what I'm doing now. So I'm, I'm basically I'm a sober performance coach. So I help people work, like learn to use and work with their body, mind, and soul. So I just I really love what I do now, and I just want to keep doing that. But uh, I just want to scale it and help more people and create programs and just keep doing what I'm doing now. But just always getting bigger and better and learning more things. Nice. Uh, and last, but certainly not least, can you give listeners, you might need to ditch the booze if line. Yeah. Um, one big sign for me and knowing that I needed to ditch booze and drugs is when I would stock up on all of it and not want to hang out with anybody and just be by myself drinking and using for a week or whatever. So I think if you're drinking and using by yourself and you're bored, that's a pretty bad sign. And so that would be my go-to one. Could be an indicator. Yes. Adam, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate you opening up and sharing your story. You've been through a lot of stuff, but again, I think it's, I think you're like a a walking testimony of some of the shit that we can go through, but we can come out of it and, and, and use those experiences to help other people. So thank you for what you're doing and thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. That means a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right, brother. Be well. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening, and thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. This past week was a little rough for me. Nothing major was going on, but life just felt hard. I didn't want to talk with anyone. I was upset about having to go to work, and there was this tinge of anxiety that felt like it was there to stay. I'm grateful to know that these times don't last forever. When my mind wants to plan out the rest of my life and try to control everything coming my way, I try to remember one of my favorite recovery sayings. You don't have to get sober for the rest of your life today. It took a few days to get through the achy feelings, but I did it. If you're going through it right now, I want to encourage you to take it one moment at a time. You don't have to do it all. Just take care of what's in front of you. Let someone know what you're going through and trust the process. We're the only ones that can do this RE, but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.
take a look at your past. Get clear. Be clear on why you're doing this. And then, go get it. <laughs>